Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about the 1985 masterpiece Clue. We're talking about that with our great friend Lauren Milberger, who is an actor and a podcast producer and host, among many other things. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. For those not in the know, Clue is an American mystery black comedy film based on the board game of the same name. It's directed by Jonathan Lynn, who collaborated on the script with John Landis, and it is produced by Deborah Hill. And that Deborah Hill connection means that it was uh, made possible in part by the success of Halloween. So this is part of the house that Michael built. Thank you so much, Mr. Myers. And thank you, Deborah Hill. We are huge, huge Deborah Hill fans here at You Are Good. The movie stars the ensemble cast of Eileen Brennan, Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKeon, Martin Mull, Leslie Ann Warren, and Colleen Camp. And it has a number of great cameos that pop up throughout. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. Uh, You get bonus episodes in return for your support. We had a spooky October episode that came out last month. This month, we'll have a bonus about home for the holidays, and there'll be some other discussion in there as well. I think last week I said that the bonus was going to be about Working Girl, but that is going to be a primary feed episode now. Thank you so much for your patience uh, with the fact that we are a crew of uh, ADHD warriors. (laughs) So the plan is often shifting. So thank you so much for bearing with us on that Uh, this month. Like I said, we'll have a bonus episode about Home for the Holidays, a, uh, a Thanksgiving cult classic, I believe. But thank you truly for supporting us in this way. You help us pay all the bills. You help us pay all of the people who are involved. We are writers. We are musicians. We are media folk. We are artists. And this is how we make our money. So we appreciate that you help to make that possible and to make this show sustainable. It means so much to us. We have a new, very limited piece of You Are Good merch available. They are shirts and they read vulnerability kink. They are based on a comment that Gabrielle left us on Instagram a couple of months ago, and we loved it so much we turned it into merch. They're gorgeous, and they have a little, little teeny tiny You Are Good underneath where it says vulnerability kink. So if you want to be like, oh, it's from a podcast, that's fine. (laughs) But it's perfect for, uh, you know, like holiday events with your family you can explain that to them and um um, i think you'll look great in it the colors are nice and all of that and it's beautifully designed i am happy about these shirts they are available to order for only the next couple of days i think three more days uh, if you're listening to this when it comes out By the way, I rarely give an explanation for what You Are Good is up front, and I'm going to do it today because once in a while, uh, people uh, are wondering. (laughs) You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is a show where we talk about movies, yes, but we're not like critical film bros. Some criticism might come up here and there, of course, Uh, but we are really using the discussion about the movie as a jumping off point for talking about things that we love and feelings that we have in processing those things. So uh, that's what you can expect here. And that's what you get out of this clue conversation. 
One more note, about two weeks back, I referred to a desolate downtown area as a globalization nightmare. And very specifically, I was referring to the work of Joseph Stieglitz, specifically his books, Globalization and Its Discontents and Freefall, uh, among many others. He's a popular economist who's been a critic of the way the global economy is set up and he would say rigged. And uh, I have been out of the game a little bit when it comes to hearing what fascists and far right wing pundits are using for dog whistles. And apparently globalist is one of those things. Uh, And a listener reached out with concern for my use of that word, particularly on a week where and I know anti-Semitism is always a gigantic issue. Uh, in this country and abroad, but I feel like a couple weeks ago was especially a heightened time. So they reached out with concern about my use of that word. I want to be clear that I was using it in the Stieglitzian, I don't know if that's a word, (laughs) but the Joseph Stieglitz sense of being critical of uh, how capitalism is structured and managed, and I wasn't using it in the other way, though using a word that is triggering in that way is still triggering. So I want to apologize for that. I want to apologize for any anxieties that may have stoked. It has been a uh, a rough go as of the past couple of weeks, particularly when it comes to anti-Semitic discourse. So I just want to let you know that that is, and I had a great conversation with the listener who brought that up. Uh, We had a nice exchange over the course of a day and I appreciate their patience with me. And uh, thank you so much. All right, everybody, let's get into this episode, shall we? Thanks so much for being here. You, my friend, are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Good evening, Alex Steed. I always want to do a themed hello, and I never what think was of that? it before. I don't know. It was British. I was being a butler. Okay. Yeah. You were being Tim Curry? I wasn't really committing to the full curry. I was just being like vaguely butlery. I thought that was, you know, yeah, that was really half-assed. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen any good board game movies that have interesting commentary on communism and red scares and feature who we think is a homosexual throughout the entire movie, which seemed progressive for an 80s board game movie until it was not? Until it wasn't. Sarah, have you seen anything that matches that description lately? I'm so happy you asked. Yes, I did watch Zathora last (laughs) night. And then today I watched Clue. (laughs) Fabulous. I hadn't seen Clue before. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a movie. It's a similar one where I think it must have been playing on like Channel 11, the movie station or TBS or something like that regularly. And it's something I picked up pieces of and conflated across the board. But when I watched the opening, I was like, oh, I have not actually seen this. This is so exciting. I thought that like all millennials, you woke up one morning and saw that the Tooth Fairy had put a VHS of Clue under your huge pillar. I was raised by Philistines. So... (laughs) That did not happen. Sarah, mm-hmm. who are we enjoying endeavoring upon Clue with? We are talking today with Lauren Milberger, who you refer to in all communications as Lauren Murphy Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, why would I why would I call you that? Uh, that would be because I uh, co-host the Murphy Brown podcast. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's not just like a pet name or or like something like I think it's funny. It's I just it's like Lauren Murphy Brown. That's your <laughs> It's actually still kind of my initials because my middle name is Beth. So Oh fantastic. <laughs> right, there you go. 
what is your relationship with this movie? Oh, well, I like to think of myself as sort of the um, pioneer of the Clue fandom. <laughs> not not just me personally, but one of, as I am a zennial, mm. half Gen X, half millennial. Mm -hmm. I am one of the few people who tried to see it in the movie theater. Mm. Um, was very young, but the times were all wrong. And I still have a memory of sitting in my parents' car just pouting because we couldn't go. My mother went, oh, we'll come back and see it next weekend. And of course, if many people are unaware or are aware, Clue was a big flop. So it, it was sort of gone in the theaters. But I was one of those people who when I went to college, it was one of three films that I took with me and I was heavily mocked for it. I watched it religiously with my brother on HBO. I think a lot of millennials watched it on Comedy Central. Mm. I'm not trying to say that this is only my experience, but the wonder of my 20s was meeting people younger than me who loved this film. I thought it was just me and a few people. Mm. And I was actually very lucky to meet Madeline Kahn. Mm. And one of the first things I said to her that I loved Clue and she looked at me like I had three heads. <laughs> and I thought at the moment, oh, I'm being, you know, I was a young girl and I was like, oh, I'm being fanny or something. Oh, like, I didn't really get what that was until years later that she was confused by me. Because mm. why would I say that I love a movie that was a huge failure? Mm -hmm. I also didn't quite get at that time that it was, right? I just thought it's something that I love. It's obviously a classic. Other people don't know. I have also in the early teens or most of the teens hosted Clue Trivia. <laughs> this is one of those films like a lot of people. I have it memorized. I think it's a classic. Anytime someone mentions Clue, I will be there, whether it's the board game or to dress up like Mrs. White. <laughs> and Sarah, you're some parts genetically Madeline Kahn, is that correct? Or is it just spiritually? Well, we're not related. But yeah, I've loved her since I was like seven I mean, we're, there are so many things to talk about with this movie, and one is that it's a beautiful gateway mm -hmm. to all these other actors' roles. And then, of course, I was a Mel Brooks tween. I was one of those tween girls whose entire personality is Mel Brooks quotes, <laughs> you know, the ones they're always talking about. <laughs> it's certainly a brand. <laughs> Yes, that's the nicest thing you've said to me since we talked about Ileana Douglas and Stir of Echoes. <laughs> so Sarah, why don't you why don't you take us on a tour throughout the the clue board and let us know sort of what this is about before we go deeper into it? Yeah, I'm I'm going to kind of do that. And the reason is that A, this movie has three alternate endings. And B, my mom loves mysteries. I've grown up watching hundreds of various sort of mystery shows with her. My brain breaks around mysteries. I never know who did it. I never can remember who was in what room when. When they do the reveal, I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then I just like, my brain is just like dead around mystery stuff. And to be fair, like it feels like the mechanics of the plot rather than the mechanics of the delivery of the plot are much less significant. Yes. 12 or 15 times I've been watching since I was a small child. And like, I, yeah, the plot to me has always been somewhat secondary. But okay, so Clue is a movie based on a board game. I also was really into Clue the board game when I was a kid. Same. And I also read novelizations of the board game Clue. <laughs> Same. Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot those existed. I can see them in my head. I thought I knew everything about Clue. I mean, I had one of the VCR games. <laughs> oh, we didn't have that. 
So yes, that, so the movie Clue, which I believe my mom probably rented for me because I love the board game Clue so much. It's about a spooky New England mansion in the 1950s where our various guests, Professor Plum, played by Christopher Lloyd, Colonel Mustard, played by Martin Mull, Mrs. White, played by Madeline Kahn, Mrs. Peacock, played by Eileen Brennan, who's a veteran of the country house murder weekend genre because she was in Murder by Death, Miss Scarlet, played by Leslie Ann Warren, and yeah, I think that's everybody, Mm. show up on a dark and stormy night. Oh, the best. Holy shit. To be greeted by Wadsworth the Butler, played by Tim Curry. Yay! And Yvette the Maid is also there. This is just, as far as I'm concerned, the Rocky Horror sequel that should have been made. Like, I'm, this is so good. Yeah. So good. That's what I should have said. <laughs> Hello. Very well done. <laughs> Yvette is played by Colleen Camp. And then we meet Mr. Body, played by Lee Ving who I believe was like the front man of a punk band, but who I know of as the guy from Flashdance who runs the strip club. Oh, is that him? Yes. And so we, everyone comes to the house. They have a dinner. They're introduced to each other. There's a lot of innuendo and double entendre. And I feel like when I was a kid, I remember that I really enjoyed that it was like a lot of very fancy adults making little kid jokes, essentially. And that's kind of the tone of the whole thing. Then we're introduced to Mr. Body, and the story we're given is that he has been blackmailing everybody. They all work in Washington in some capacity. Miss Scarlet runs a brothel. Colonel Mustard is a colonel, famously. Professor Plum works for the UN, etc. Wadsworth tells everybody that Mr. Body is blackmailing them all, and they each get a weapon from the board game. So a candlestick, a dagger, rope, lead pipe a revolver also just like devoted what's it called replicas of the ones from the guy yeah it was so satisfying yes. having a relationship with those pieces yeah and then seeing how they were created it wasn't like a variant of them it was like exactly the ones from the game and that was like i don't know why that like hit a sense memory for me so hard but I was like i like that it's exactly the same because <laughs> you've, you've held those things so many times yeah yes exactly i was like imagine holding a real one yeah i mean they're they're pipes and stuff well, so you it's know. But I, yeah, has there ever been like a Monopoly movie where they're like, and here's the hat and the shoe and the I forget the other things. There's a little dog, a thimble. Anyway, a little Scotty. Yeah. <laughs> what a weird game. Lights go out. Bunch of shit happens. <laughs> this is kind of my summary for the whole movie. A bunch of shit happens. The lights go out. Somebody screams. The lights come on. Someone has fired the gun, but it hasn't hit leaving Mr. Body. But he is dead, or he appears to be dead. Everybody starts scurrying around. Yvette screams. They go find her. She says, Mon Dieu, I also drank the cognac. <laughs> They're afraid that the brandy is poisoned. They run into the kitchen. The cook has been stabbed. I, I'm going to do such a bad job with this. A bunch of other people show up. A cop shows up. He gets killed. A motorist shows up. I think he gets killed. Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's shows up to do a singing telegram. <laughs> Somebody shoots her. It's the best. The best. <laughs> Famously, the finale of this, which was a really good gimmick, and it's too bad it didn't work out, is that when this movie was in theaters, it had three alternate endings, which my understanding is that different ones were shown at different theaters and on different screenings. 
And in the home video version, they just give you all of them. And that's what makes it really fun. And we spend basically the back half of the movie with Wadsworth running around the scary house, reenacting what happened that night and presenting three different scenarios, one in which Miss Scarlet basically killed everybody, one in which Mrs. Peacock basically killed everybody, and one in which everybody killed somebody, and Wadsworth was in fact Mr. Body, and Mr. Body was his butler. And my only issue with that is that I don't see leaving as a very good butler. Good point. And then it turns out that Mr. Green, Michael McKeon, he's the one I forgot to mention. Shake, rattle, and roll. The end. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, there's a lot of Hoover in this movie. We have the repeated line, communism was just a red herring. (laughs) And I feel like what we're going to talk about is like, not, you know, not the story, but the feeling of it. Yes. Totally. You know, I think a lot of people like to bring up, you know, why were all these kids so uh, drawn to this movie? And I think a lot of people who were older or part of the film would say, oh, well, it was very slapsticky and it was silly. But mm-hmm. it's really not. It's really highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. And what I think is great is that it's a mix of both. It sort of reminds me of the writers from Cheers and Frasier would say, oh, when we would have mm-hmm. sort of a highfalutin joke, we would always follow it with sort of a lowbrow joke. So well, <laughs> one half of the people are laughing at one joke. You're laughing at another joke. Oh, that's nice. It's so witty. It's something that I keep thinking, you know, as I get older, I'm going to go back to it and not enjoy it as much as I did when I was, you know, eight or 14 or 16. And I do every single time. It's not just so quotable. It's just it's funny people at the height of their talent Mm -hmm. doing their absolute best. And it's sad to me that a lot of people don't see that. Yeah. Who doesn't see that? Uh, America did not in 1985. <laughs> well, 1980, we were we were worse then. Yeah. I hate to generalize, right? Because I don't want anyone out there to be like, I'm not a millennial and I love this, or I'm not a Gen mm-hmm. X and I love this, right? But it is considered really sort of a cult classic, so to speak, of the millennial generation. And I've mentioned Madeline Kahn to Gen Z and they don't know who she is. That's the insane New York Times article I'm going to write. They're always panicking about whoever's young. And I'm going to be like, Gen Z hasn't heard of Madeline Kahn. And it's a problem. It's ruining their lives and therefore mine. I would agree. Yeah. And people who are older than me. And again, this has just been my experience. Don't understand why I love this movie. Hmm. One of my memories I remember, um, I don't know when it was, but probably very early in the 2000s or late in the 90s. I was watching CBS this morning And the weatherman was uh, coming back from a clip. They were asking people at the Grammys what their favorite films were. And it (laughs) ended on Justin Timberlake saying Clue. Oh, Justin. And it came back and uh, Mark McEwen, that's what it was. He went, Clue? Okay. Oh, my God. Like No clue and sort of laughed it off. And I remember that. Yeah. I think that it's sort of this kind of niche thing. And I don't know what it is. And I also don't really quite know why it didn't take on. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that the director feels that the different endings confused people. And instead of choosing one, they chose none. Mm-hmm. Do we know how much it factored in that? Like we had no precedent for adapting a board game into a movie. I feel like that's like a, like a concept hmm. that now, obviously, obviously. That's a good point, you know, but now we've overdone it. So that's fun. <laughs> it's part of the reason why I never touched it is I was like, why I think mm-hmm. is like, why, why? Why would I watch this? Why would I watch an adaptation of Clue? That on the front of it is like a Brooks tradition, although he didn't produce or have anything to do with this, right? Outside of Madeline Kahn, 
which is funny. <laughs> it's when Landis was still untainted. No, John Landis was very tainted at this time. Don't worry. Oh, he was. T- oh, age, oh, date wise, yes. he was tainted. Yeah, the Twilight Zone movie was 83, I think, or 82. I mean, he only produced it. It's a Jonathan Lynn production. And if you've seen any of Jonathan Lynn's other work, it's it's his name written all over mm-hmm. it. To me, from the outside, looking at like the art and stuff, again, it's like a nod to mystery thrillers generally in mm-hmm. in literature. But I'm like, what the fuck is happening in this movie from the outside? And I wonder how much people were feeling that way. Right. It feels very inspired by House on Haunted Hill, actually. And like you mentioned, Murder by Death. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what the marketing was for this film at all. But all of the people in this film are top notch funny people of the time. Mm-hmm. It's not like people were going to see an ad for this and go, I don't know who any of these people are. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was the marketing or people didn't know what to do. I don't agree that people didn't know what ending. You just, you know, pick it. It mm-hmm. just had like an A, B or C in the newspaper. So you wouldn't really even know what it was. But also, if you think about it, if people picked a different ending, they wouldn't get flames on the side of my face, mm-hmm. which is one of the best part of the whole f- movie. I feel like that's the quote, yeah, at this point. And that we all, and that millennials just know, like we all know that. Well, it's like a canon gif too. Like even if you don't know the movie, you know the gif. Yeah, you know the gif, absolutely, yeah. I wonder how much of this has to do with like the place of silliness in American culture and like how much of a place did silliness have in the mid 80s? Like, I don't know how much of a place it has now like it's like the americans embrace of silliness has has fluctuated though i feel like no i feel like also it's very british yeah and sometimes there's a disconnect between british humor and american humor Mm -hmm. i wonder if people weren't really ready for it even though it was a throwback and i also feel like if i'm like reviewing movies at this time and if i'm sent to watch clue i would just come home and open up my typewriter and just be like i don't even know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's part of the reason why I asked if Mel Brooks had anything to do with it, because I think, Sarah, I think your point is great. I don't think Americans know what to do with silliness at this time in particular. There were like people who had created the space for them to be trusted with silliness, who would be Mel Brooks. I mean, Mel Brooks is like the right. king of that. License to be silly. But like outside of that, like I feel like people until like moderately recently had a very difficult time like being like, oh, I'm supposed to have fun, not at tropes expense. Like I'm supposed to just like have fun in a silly time. I don't know. I don't know how to deal with this. It's also very fast. I mean, some of the jokes can go by so quickly that you might miss them. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Which shows why maybe it became more popular where you could have repeat viewing where you sure. could rent the dvd you could watch it on television all the time and catch things that you didn't catch before mm-hmm. and it's interesting looking and you know we have like different versions of this today but how in the 80s this was the first time when something could flop in the theater and then come out in video mm-hmm. and then develop a following there which i feel like The example I always think of is The Princess Bride, kind of in a similar way. Nobody quite knew what to do with it. It wasn't a hit theatrically at all. And then like gradually over time, I don't know what it's like today, but in the 90s, it was just like the law that if you had children in the house, you had to have The Princess Bride. Mm -hmm. No, same. As a jumping off point, I think we could get personal on this is like, why was this one of the three movies you brought to school? Like, why is this a movie that seeped into your your being? And what were the other two? Yeah, exactly. What was it accomplishing? I just really love verbal comedy and Madeline Kahn. I think it's one of her absolute best performances. I agree with you, Sarah. She's Mm -hmm. 
I think a comic genius. <laughs> Wish more people knew, you know, what she brought to the table. She was so unique. Mm-hmm. And it, it really makes me sad that she's not around for prestige television. I mean, there's so many shows that she would have been great on, like White Lotus. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And she really died very young. I think she was like, what, 53 or something. She was 57. <sighs> Anyone that you lose young feels cheated, but it just really feels like we're cheated of her. Yeah. But I digress. It's a comfort film for me. What comforts does it trigger? Like why this versus 16 Candles? Very little sexual violence in this movie, you have to admit. (laughs) Astoundingly little. And actually, I would say a progressive attitude towards sex a little bit. Right. And I don't mean to be vague, but for someone who just, I was always gravitating towards verbal comedy. Mm -hmm. Back and forth. I love films from the 1930s and 40s, which obviously this is trying to uh, take on a, a... a swath of that, right? Sure. And I don't know why I'm so stumped that it's my absolute favorite movie of all time. I could watch it nonstop. Mm-hmm. I think it is so sharp from everything from the visual effects to the comedy to the actors. Mm-hmm. It feels so vague, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's all I can think of at the moment. I, and I'm sorry, it's vague. I feel stumped by it, too. And I feel like this is part of what, yeah, what this whole hour is about. I I feel like maybe one of the reasons A, why I love it and B, why it's hard to describe is because there's really nothing quite like it. Like Murder by Death has, you know, it's like all scary house weekend farce, but it's much more over the top, I would say. I mean, there's like kind of things that are adjacent to it, but it didn't establish a genre. Like it just continued to exist all by itself throughout time, I would say. And it, it feels like a bottle episode of television, right? You know, you never le- huh. leave that location. You never learn their real names. <laughs> you know, nothing except for what happens there. It almost feels like a play. Yeah. The acts of it also are very specific. Mm-hmm. Not just those endings. There should be a play version. There should be a high school play. There is. <laughs> That's so great. And it's perfect, too, like outside of just like, does it adapt well? But this is some fucking theater nerd shit yeah. if I've ever seen it. Like, right? this is like straight up horny nerd shit. Like, this is yeah. what, that's what Clue is doing. <laughs> there is a direct line between who grew up loving this movie and who was a theater kid, for sure. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. I mean, the three lead women in this film, not Colleen Camp, but the three, you know, main Mrs. White, Mrs. Peacock, Miss Scarlet, they were all Oscar nominated for comedic performances, which is really mm-hmm. difficult to do. I mean, obviously should be more often because comedy is really not respected as much as it mm-hmm. should be. But the fact that these three women were all nominated for an Oscar for a comedy performance, which is so hard mm-hmm. to get as it is, really just shows mm-hmm. how great they are at their jobs. Right. Yeah. Madeline Kahn for Paper Moon with the iconic line. I forget her character's name, but like, let Miss Madeline Kahn ride in the front with her big tits. (laughs) But also, also Blazing Saddles, she was Oscar nominated. Oh, my God. God. Madeline Kahn. Back to back comedic performances. Yeah. And I just feel like that wouldn't happen today. And what has happened? Is the only binary to this, like in the past 30 years, and I'm not comparing them style wise, just the fact that a movie in this setting had any comedic elements at all. Is the only binary Knives Out? I would argue that Ready or Not is like (laughs) kind of adjacent. Yeah. Because it's like scary house, very funny. Yeah. 
what's the actor's name? The James Bond fellow in that movie. Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. I think he's as great in Knives Out as Tim Curry is in this as our, and I know yes. that they're playing different roles. Well, obviously <laughs> they're doing kind of different, but they are our almost like stage manager of everything that's happening. And I, I love it. I love them both so much. I love, and I just like, fucking love Tim Curry talking fast. Oh. And Daniel Craig talking like Shelby Foote, I would say, is like intrinsically <laughs> very funny. Like we all know what he sounds like. It's very funny to hear him sound like Shelby Foote for two hours. <laughs> this is the truth. I mean, for someone like Tim Curry to be so specifically dexterous with his uh, words to speak that fast in that final scene is it's a marathon that he's running. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, it is, it is. Also, I think the score deserves a lot of credit. The score makes me so happy. The score is great. Yeah. I mean, there's a moment that I wanted to bring up when I was rewatching that the music even informs the comedy. <laughs> I mean, when you have that great moment of let us out, let us out, let us in, let us in. And then the music <laughs> just stops for that one moment and like puts a period on the joke and then goes up again it's brilliant oh my god that's beautiful just yeah it works and i would also compare it to april fool's day which came out the year after and which also everybody hated i love that movie except alex i love that movie so much <laughs> and like it's good and people have recognized it lately as great but yeah so april fool's day was a deconstructed slasher that came out in 1986 which spoiler 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 it turned out that everybody was faking their deaths and our main character, Deborah Foreman, was doing a rehearsal for her murder mystery mansion weekend business. And people were so <laughs> mad about that ending. Considering you're two people who watch this a lot, I mean, I would argue 12 is a lot. And I would imagine Lauren watches maybe many more times than 12. I've lost count. Who were your go-to characters and why did you love them? I mean, it's always Mrs. White. Mm. All the performances are stellar. But Madeline Kahn in general always brings to her work this surprise, this new idea. She She's going to take a line and just say it in a way that no one is going to say. I, I mean, I think a lot of people already know that the flame section is completely improv. It was not in the script. Mm -hmm. She made it up herself, just kept going on until they, they hit cut. Mm -hmm. Because it felt right to her. You know, one of my favorite quotes about Madeline Kahn is she said that sometimes to do comedy, you have to feel pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because to her, it was just real. Every time I watch it, I am also gravitated to different performances as well. But she was always my staying point. Mm -hmm. But I am happy that this film is popular among a lot of people because I feel like a lot of people aren't familiar with Eileen Brennan who is also brilliant in this film, just the, mm -hmm. the whole monologue uh, at the dinner table trying to make small talk mm -hmm. is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I've seen it on shirts with just like the whole monologue on a shirt. It's amazing. Oh, that's great. Unfortunately, I think the kind of performer, there are a lot of women in the 70s that people just aren't going back and watching their films necessarily which I think should be remedied. Mm -hmm. And even, I think a lot of times when I used to watch it in my youth, I would take Leslie and Warren for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she's really wonderful. And I don't know why I did that, but I feel like watching it again as an adult, I also see how brilliant her performance mm -hmm. is. I love Leslie Ann Warren. The fact that this is the same year that Christopher Lloyd also did Back to the Future. That is incredible. Is crazy. But of course, 1985 was an amazing year for film, particularly for comedy. There's so many good films in 85. I mean, yeah, and just watching them perform together 
is such a privilege. And I feel like, I don't know, like any movie we get to see is typically the result of a lot of compromises and a lot of probably bad choices that were made or somehow magically avoided because like someone controlling the money like didn't believe or didn't trust what was funny or what was scary or what was sexy or whatever. Um, And this feels I feel like this feels special partly because it's like a bunch of people who know how to be funny without stuff being constantly thrown in their way. No. You know? Yeah. I think Jonathan Lynn is the real testament to that because he's Mm -hmm. directed it and he wrote it. I don't know if any of you have seen Yes, Prime Minister, which was his big show in England that he did. Mm -mm. He's a comedy veteran Mm -hmm. when he came over. The sad part to me is that they didn't get in his way and then it was a flop Mm -hmm. and then it was really hard for him to get another job. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the breadth of his career, he directed My Cousin Vinny the whole nine yards. He went on to do very successful comedy in America. And for some reason, this took a while to land. This also reminds me of Noises Off, which is like yes. hysterically funny as a play and kind of works as a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I think also didn't do great. That also came out in the 80s. It's funny because like I feel like Americans, like we at least think of ourselves as sort of uncultured and having a crude sense of humor. But I think maybe we went straight to toilet stuff and we missed farce. <laughs> I think until like three years ago, not more than 10 people humored the fact that this entire thing was a joke. Why is that? Do we secretly take ourselves extremely seriously? I think maybe that's why. <laughs> I think farce is a hard sell with Americans for some reason. But wait a second. I think I might take that back. I feel like we're going back and forth, or I am at least like, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, right? But Frasier is a huge hit. It's true. Frasier is a huge farce. Frasier is, some points, I would get uncomfortable watching them go through that when I had to cover my eyes, and I love farce. Maybe by the 90s, our bodies were ready. (laughs) Perhaps. Also, like, I think, like, Frasier worked. Frasier got away with a lot because they had a 10-year running start of being on, on another show. Also, very good point. Because I loved Frasier, but I don't think I like entered it initially as a child, obviously. I don't think I entered it initially as being like, you know what? I love farce. I think I was like, that guy from the show my parents loved is still doing it. And then I think that introduced me to a lot of elements that otherwise I might not have bought into, mm-hmm. you know, on my own. Are you familiar with Eddie Izzard's stand-up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She has that, in fact, I think she and someone turned it into a sketch where it's sort of making fun of these uh, period dramas. Oh, uh, is that a matchbook that you have? I'm so sorry. And then this closing doors and closing doors and I'm butchering it so badly. But I almost wonder if that's maybe what Americans think of when they think of farce, that it's going to be yeah. big, big wigs and, and corsets and, and some Shakespearean thing and just slamming doors and going, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I know what to do. Let's see what was the big hit comedy in 1985 and then we'll do a comparison. That's a Brilliant. great choice. That is a great idea. A lot of my movie memories are based on, like, I think what was affordable for Comedy Central to have in repeats. Right. Yes. In the early 2000s. So, like, very occasionally they would give us a little treat and play Ferris Bueller. And then for every once that happened, they would play just one of the guys 25 times. (laughs) Oh, my God. All the time. Number one hit of 1985. This will surprise no one. Back to the Future. Number two, Beverly Hills Cop. What about Teen Wolf? Number three, Rambo Mm. First Blood 2. Number four, Rocky 4. Number five, Cocoon. Oh, my God. That track. Teen Wolf is 
not finding Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf is number 23. It's between The Killing Fields and Silverado. <laughs> what do we think Better Off Dead is as far as, a, as far as what genre? I mean, no, it's a comedy. I would put Better Off Dead. Would you say that's farce? <laughs> would you say that's American teen farce? I would call it absurdist. Absurdist. That's it. That's great. Yeah, it's American teen absurdism. And I would add that, Alex, to your list of like Pete and Pete. Yes. Oh, Pete and Pete. Being inspired by Twin Peaks, I feel like Better Off Dead is like in that Pete and Pete realm of absurdism for kids. Right, of shaping what that would become. Yeah, that's great. Also, looking at some of the popular comedies just from the titles, you have Police Academy 2, Weird Science. <laughs> You have Goonies, Spies Like Us, Brewster's Millions, Summer Rental, European Vacation, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I, I almost wonder if Clue wasn't dirty enough for people. Not that Pee-wee's is dirty, but... I, you got a great view of Colleen Camp's boobs you running sure around. Do. That was you all do. I cared about. <laughs> the thing that I was surprised, again, going into this movie, sort of only having impressions from the front of the box or whatever, is I loved its relationship with sex like i thought like as far mm -hmm. as like it's a very funny take on a sex comedy you know it's like a wordy sex mm -hmm. comedy because it's clever <laughs> it's like, yeah what if a sex comedy had no sex in it in fact and it was entirely about our psychological relationship with it and the way that people sort of engage about it like what a funny yeah very difficult sell for people who are going to see porky's revenge yeah <laughs> For people who are wondering, Porky's Revenge sounds like a horror movie, A, and B, for people who are wondering, Clue is the 107th best performing movie of 1985. Oof. It is behind 1984, but it edged out Break in Two, Electric Boogaloo. So that's really nice. Oh, no. <laughs> Which the angel portrayed by Matt Damon in Dogma says on a long enough timeline, history will show he was right about the best title you know i've never seen it it's fine i haven't seen it i've seen i saw the first one but i, I didn't see the second one but the title is just mm, uh, it's fantastic yeah like this part of the list this these are all the movies that i most enjoy so under break and two we have ghostbusters just i think because it came out the year before and was in like a gradual trickle <laughs> by 1985 lost yeah. in america Daryl starring Barrett Oliver, oh, wow. The Trip to Bountiful, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Transylvania 6 5000, and Red Sonia. <laughs> <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street 2, shout out to Mark Patton. Keep doing what you're doing. Yes. Witness Fletch. What wow. a, just a great year. Murphy's Romance, St. Elmo's Fire. Desperately seeking Susan. It's an incredibly confusing genre time. Yeah, it's yes. a fantastic, and you know, I don't know what the competition in December when it came out was. Oh, The Legend of Billie Jean, another great film that is not known oh, wow. as much. Oh, wow, another yeah, great I love movie. That movie. I know what I bring up when you were talking about having to watch certain movies on basic cable. Channel 11 in New York City, I think, Alex, you mentioned that, used to show Clue a lot. Yeah. But they used to edit out all of hmm. the dogs sniffing can I say the shit? The poop, the dog poop thing? Okay, yeah. cool. Sorry, yeah. that's why oh, I was yeah. like, can You I... can say anything you want. You can say nine guys felching eight guys on this show. <laughs> I don't know why I stopped myself. I was like, even if I said shit, you could have just edited it out. I don't know why I got all flustered. Like, can I say shit? Awesome. You're, you're used to the refined world of the Murphy Brown podcast. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you want to say about Murphy Brown with swears in it while you're here? <laughs> <laughs> I'll think it over. But anyway, so <laughs> Channel 11 would edit out the scene when Wadsworth steps in the shit and then everyone smells their shoes. Mm -hmm. Completely cut it out. Yeah. And I 
don't understand why that was offensive. That's weird. That's so weird. I assume just for time, maybe? I don't know, though. That's odd. No one says shit, but you can't smell it, apparently, on uh, basic television. <laughs> While watching it and I saw that bit, I was like, I think this might be tedious. When they did the shit piece where he steps in it and then they have everyone sort of like smelling their shoes. I get it, but I was like, is it going to be like this the whole time? That's a good point. It very was not, thankfully. Mm -hmm. It is a funny bit, but like it's the least funny bit in the entire movie. I'm always curious mm -hmm. about like what people cut and why, and I understand that there's a, a heaps of psychology and corporate power behind it. My favorite cut was the first time I was ever on an airplane. They played Rain Man. They cut the scene because this is before <laughs> for the you young people. Before you had your own terminal, you were all forced to watch the same film. <laughs> and I'd already seen it. And they cut the scene when he talks about all the plane crashes. Oh, my God. Amazing. <laughs> they didn't cut the part where he kidnapped his brother. No, no, that'd be the whole film. <laughs> well, that's the, then you just show the first 15 minutes and then you have to go straight into uh, Roger Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm on the plane already. I can't get off. That's <laughs> true. So I don't quite understand why you have to not remind me that the plane could crash. You but know, okay. some people are, are right on the edge. The story I love about that, and I might have even mentioned it when we did the episode about Rain Man because I love it so much, is that they cut that scene in every airline broadcast of that movie except on Qantas. <laughs> because Raymond says in the scene, Qantas never went down. Yes, he does! And Qantas, as we know from the movie, is an Australian airline. That's amazing! That's amazing! So everyone got to watch Uncut Rain Man on their that's Qantas great. flights. <laughs> what advertising for them. Oh, that's brilliant. I love it. Because you as an airline have no excuse to have an ad that just lists all the other airline crashes that have happened. But if you have Dustin Hoffman saying it in an award-winning role. <laughs> Maybe they didn't make an ad out of it. And I always like to bring up that Madeline Kahn trained as an opera singer in college, right? And like that's and that really well, is there. Yes and no. Yeah. Here's her story. Mm. So Madeline Kahn was in the theater department, mm -hmm. was doing a lot of musical theater over the summer. And anyone listening who I'm getting the timeline a little bit wrong, I apologize, but I read her book a while ago. Um, she worked in a German beer hall and had to learn mm -hmm. to sing arias. And her mother taught her how to sing. And she found out that she had sort of a higher voice. Uh, or the range, I should say. She was able to sort of, you know, bring out her range. Mm -hmm. But yeah. unfortunately, Madeline Kahn had such a bad experience in the theater department. I think mm. an example of how she was just so different and they mm -hmm. probably tried to put her into a, a round hole in a square peg, so to speak. So she was so disillusioned that she quit and then mm. she graduated with a degree in uh, voice therapy. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of her training, I mean, I'm sure that she eventually also had professional training as well, but a mm -hmm. lot of that is just her voice. Mm -hmm. For sure. She definitely could have had the choice to do opera her whole life because she had the range, but she chose yeah. to do comedy and musical theater because that's what <laughs> her love was. And she did beer hall training. Kristen Chenoweth, same thing. Oh, yeah. I love how present that is in her roles, not just when she sings, which is often. I love how she's like, I don't even know if this is the correct term, but she's like harmonizing on for she's a jolly good fellow in this amazing way. Part of what I love about Madeline Kahn so much as a comic performer is how much control she has over her voice and how she says things. And I suspect that all that training and singing like made her so good at modulating her voice to like the tiniest little flutter that makes it so much funnier. Agreed. And I think that's what also makes her unique is that she has sort of this 
this range of control. I mean, this is a film where she's really in a lower register than I think you would ever see her in any other film. Hmm. Hmm. She's very deadpan, which she's brilliant at, but that I wouldn't say that in her other more famous performances that Madeline Kahn is a completely deadpan performer. Mm -hmm. To have that sort of lower register in the same film where she also goes with the flames, just like really high into her head voice there, (laughs) is really quite brilliant. And I think you're right. I think that she has this amazing control because she is a singer over both sort of parts of her voice. Mm -hmm. To your point about the styles of performance, both with regard to uh, Madeline Kahn's various roles, but just like how I think like what a lot of the people in this movie are very good at. And I just did a lot of driving over the past couple of months. And part one of the books I listened to was Mel Brooks biography, oh, which I would so I think should be required reading for everyone with read by himself. God yes, bless him. Totally. Which is the biggest sell because it's like him just smiling and telling a story at you, which is great. Yeah. But he talks a lot about when he was directing and talks about directing Uh, Khan and talks about directing all sorts of people is what was important to him is that like everyone take the role seriously and the comedy is in the seriousness of the delivery. Yeah, That's a thing that I didn't fully realize that that is like a style that I enjoy and have long enjoyed since I was a kid. And there's a little sadness about having missed this when it originally came out. The thing that I think that this movie does especially well is showcase all of these people's talent. And like Martin Mull to me is like the king of this in one way or another is that it's like playing serious in tight, Mm -hmm. though like still being able to access the comedy of playing that kind of like controlled serious character. Like there is the comedy sort of like in the shadow of that. I love that. I think like, and also like Michael McKeon is someone who I haven't seen play that kind of like measured dichotomy as much as I was able to see in this. Everyone's performance along those lines, which also helps Tim Curry be able to be Tim Curry when it's time for Tim Curry to be Tim Curry at the end of this movie. I love that. I love what this movie does with showcasing that sort of performance. Yeah, I agree. It's heightened reality, but all of the people in the scene are acting as it is life or death, they're taking everything seriously. And, you know, you hear the thing truth and comedy, and I I agree with that. That's the kind of comedy that I enjoy. Maybe that's why I did gravitate towards it. Life is full of comedy and drama. Mm -hmm. And if you treat everything like it's really actually happening, the situation of what's happening is going to sort of come through with what's funny because it's real. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. I also love, I just read this about Michael McKeon, and I sure I knew this at one time, but you know, he is married to Annette O'Toole mm-hmm. and they co-wrote The Kiss at the End of the they Rainbow did. from A Mighty Wind. Yes. Oh, it's so good. And I feel like there's something and then like that and Madeline Kahn and so many other people, Steve Martin with his banjo at Knott's Berry Farm. Martin Mull, too. Does he do music? Martin Mull started off playing the same sort of like bluegrass and Americana circuits that Martin would eventually be known for doing at that time, like in the, in, the, in the early 70s. There's a lot of overlap between music and comedy in that sense, yes. where like you have to work with people. <laughs> This is the thing that stuck out to me the most about what book did I just say that I was reading? God, my friggin' the brain. Mel Brooks. The Mel Brooks book. As he was talking about how important for him, his background is in jazz drumming. Oh, I love that section. That's right. Oh, that section I was so that. good. And just like the importance of how rhythm played in in like sort of like vaudeville scenes and like Borscht Belt scenes, like in that sort of style of comedy as well that rhythm was so fundamentally important for what was funny. Mm -hmm. And I think you're exactly right, uh, Sarah, is that like the people who have mastery 
of music and comedy, it's not surprising because their mm-hmm. ability to like tap into not just what's mm-hmm. like evidently funny, but subconsciously funny about how rhythm works yeah. is incredible. Yeah. I love that you brought that up because rhythm is such an important part of comedy as obviously it is to music. But I think also there's different kinds of rhythm, right? Like Mel Brooks would have a very specific mm-hmm. Jewish Borscht Belt rhythm that is going to mm-hmm. be maybe a little different than a British rhythm. It doesn't mean that one's wrong and one's mm-hmm. yes, bad. Totally. It's just going to yeah. be different. And if you can sort of key into the rhythm of yes. the tone that you're doing, I mean, this could have been a film mm-hmm. that was great on paper and maybe was directed by somebody else and was originally going to be written by somebody else. It's a whole behind the scenes thing. Definitely check all that all out. And it might yeah. not have worked. It could have had the wrong part of direction. Mm-hmm. You didn't get it. You could have had the wrong actors. And obviously, I mean, that's everything. Mm-hmm. But there's so many ways that a movie can go wrong, then it can go right because one piece is missing. And, you know, you see a lot of people get so upset Mm -hmm. because a movie is bad. And, you know, I can't believe they made that. Well, they didn't know it was going to be bad when they started it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I feel like it's like movies come to us and like no matter how much we all love to hear behind the scenes stuff. And I feel like most people do. It's still hard to not feel, I think, because our dumb animal brains get so tricked by it that, like, it didn't just happen. I don't know. Like, a great example of this is Cats, where, like, if I'm making Cats and I'm Idris Elba and I'm in Cats, then I'm just going to be like, this guy, he's been very successful with musicals. He made The King's Speech, which is a great movie. I'm just going to trust him. I'm just going to give it my all and be a cat. Yeah. Yeah. Very famous musical. Absolutely. I don't know that the effects people are going to be like pushed way too hard and everything's going to look like garbage. Why would I assume that? Why would I assume a lot of things? You said some version of this earlier, Sarah, too, is like the counter to this point is what gets outside of all of the institutional sort of like sexism, racism, sort of misogyny, Mm -hmm. outside of all of that, which are all fundamental reasons things don't get made. Often people are greenlit out of luck entirely. Mm -hmm. I don't mean this whole thing to be a Mel Brooks nod, but that book is so fresh in my brain. Please, Madeline Kahn, talk about Mel Brooks. He loves her. Might as well. It's a Madeline Kahn movie. (laughs) The thing that stood out to me about that is we had Mel Brooks because of all of his work forever, obviously, like he was writing on your show shows. Like he was, he had his work, but Mm -hmm. he didn't become huge until he made the producers. It was a gamble across the board for all sorts of reasons based on knowing what the producers is. And who was it that saw in the the oh Peter Sellers tried to go see a Truffaut movie. <laughs> the projectionist lost the 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 movie. He locked accidentally locked the reel in a closet, <laughs> and they were like, "Go see the producers." And he went to see the producers, loved it so much that he took out an ad in Variety making a personal plea to audiences to give it a chance from Peter Sellers. That's wonderful. Yeah, but that was huge for him. And like that, like greenlit the rest of his work. (laughs) Do you both know who was supposed to be originally cast as uh, Miss Scarlet? I don't. Carrie Fisher. Oh, Carrie Fisher. Great. That's amazing. That would have been great too. Yes, but a different Miss Scarlet, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The reason that she couldn't do it was because she was in rehab. Uh, Mm. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's important. It's very important. But the thing that makes me laugh is they tried to make a deal and Carrie Fisher's people said, well, she could still do the film. She'll just go back to rehab at night. Hmm. 
You know, film sets are famously very relaxed locations where no one is doing drugs. So. Sure, sure, with no drugs or alcohol. Yeah. And Jonathan Lynn, obviously being very new to Hollywood, said, how is that possible? Oh my God, that's amazing. Uh, and so they decided to ask somebody else. That's amazing. Also, I want to mention that Leslie Ann Warren, and Lauren, you can correct me because I'm going to, I always get something at least 12% wrong. But I believe, I'm pretty sure that like her big break was playing Cinderella. Yes. In like 1965. That is absolutely correct. Yeah. Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella. It's just such a different palette of her talent. Yes. It's Cinderella grew up. Did she ever? She started a business. Yeah. <laughs> and I as a kid, I loved her character so much and I still do. And I remember being like very sad when it came around to her being the villain and very relieved when I was given alternatives. This isn't something I think I ever really noticed as a kid or maybe even until now, but I love how it kind of like shows the absurdity of the murder mystery plot by being like all of these things are possible and they're kind of equally possible. <laughs> totally. <laughs> even though at one point you can hear Madeline Kahn screaming upstairs, but we're supposed to believe that she killed a vet downstairs and that when the voice talking to a vet at one point sounds like a man and then one point sounds like a woman to sort of like throw you off. Yes. Uh, you just mm -hmm. go, yeah, no, disbelief. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You mentioned behind the scenes thing, Lauren. Do you have any insight? Because like I was in watching this, I was surprised, right? That this is a tie in movie to Clue and that they maybe had the IP to Clue. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking that like Clue, in my experience, family board game. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that has a madam as a character. Again, there's sort of like a whole lot of sexual comedy verbally. Someone gets castrated. Yeah, there's always castrated. Yeah. There's a gay character, it, depending on the ending. Kind of, yeah. That is like, <laughs> not even just like, and it's 0% played for last with the exception of one person maybe tells a joke that more tells about their character than a McKeon character. Like, I would assume if today Hasbro was like, we're going to make a Clue movie or we're going to make a board game movie, th there would be less transgressive elements in it. Could be wrong. I feel like there'd be fewer references to communism. Yes. How did this happen? <laughs> Why did this happen? You know, that's a really good question. And I should have reread the oral history before I came on. So I apologize to anyone out there who's going to yell at me for being wrong. They won't. They'll just share the link to us and it'll keep the episode and the algorithms. Fantastic. <laughs> Lauren's not a Lauren's not a true clue fan. What has she done? How dare her come on the podcast and say falsehoods? They will say that, yeah. And now people who have already typed yeah. that out will feel weird. <laughs> we beat them to the punch. Only if I can read it back in an accent, yeah. then I'll just be really happy. We got a review once where the entire review was just talking about how much they love the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you hate us. I'm glad you hate us. Thank you for telling us of another show with an eminent thing you also enjoy. Oh my God, that's mm -hmm. amazing. A show where nothing is funny, but people are talking fast and you're not supposed to tell the difference. <laughs> Just write your sexy Lenny Bruce fan fiction and put it on the for me. That's what I did. <laughs> So there's no fathers in this movie that we know about. Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah, no one. Yeah, they don't seem like parents. No. And if they are, they're the kind of parents that leave their children in a state where they need to listen to a feelings podcast about movies. <laughs> yeah, Mrs. Peacock then. Mrs. Peacock is a father? Mrs. Peacock must... must <laughs> 
Well, Peacock was a man. As a parent, I'm just correcting that. I think probably she was. I mean, if she could leave, yes. you know, money in a bathroom stall, she probably can leave her kids with some nanny. Yes, definitely. <laughs> that said, who would you consider to be the daddy? Sarah, why don't you kick us off? Mm. <sighs> Gosh. I mean, yeah, it's hard to not say Madeline Kahn. I feel like Madeline Kahn is the implicit daddy of everything she's in. We all know this. I'm going to say Leslie Ann Warren because I do feel like she is under-recognized uh, today as the comedy legend that she so clearly is. I also grew up watching her. Maybe, I mean, she wasn't on it that much, I don't think, but she at least had a guest role on Will and Grace that I feel like exposed her to people my age and... Yeah, she's just doing a lot. And I love one of our endings where she kind of goes into full femme fatale mode. It's so delightful. Everybody is. Yes. You know what? I'm going to say this the whole cast working together as well, because it's just beautiful to see everybody supporting each other, at least in the scenes that we got. Everybody doing what they do best and allowing space for the people around them to do that as well. It's just wonderful to experience. Yeah, like as an ensemble experience goes in a much different vibe, this feels a lot like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where <laughs> It's like, oh, interesting. Yeah. The texture created by the whole mm -hmm. is wonderful start to finish. Yeah. Different vibe. No one drops the ball. <laughs> Everybody hands it. Right. Yeah. It's not something where everyone in the ensemble is always the person handing. Right. right. They're okay with taking the ball and then giving it to someone else and then waiting. I mean, that's obviously what a good ensemble is, mm -hmm. but they're also okay with not being the center of attention. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Which can be hard for such name. I mean, they're all big names in this film at the time. Maybe not now, but at the time, this would have been a big get to get all these people. They could have had egos about it. And you don't really see an ego in any of these performances. They're all really just working so smoothly together. So I'm going to go next so we can leave with Lauren's take, which I think is important. Okay. Martin Mull was huge for me as a kid. For some reason, he's in, again, I've always referred to the category of men who I was drawn to as a kid inexplicably, which are vaguely bitchy men. It explains a lot about my personality then and now. And who all had like an affect in one particular way or another. And like, this is a classic mm -hmm. Martin Mull role. I love it, though I'm not picking him. I'm picking Tim Curry. Tim Curry in this role can't describe it it feels again it feels like a much more comfortable sequel i never saw the actual sequel or like the vague sequel to rocky horror but like this feels like a perfect sequel to rocky horror it makes sense to me that there were talkback mm -hmm. performances like i didn't experience any of that as it happened but just watching him wind up through the movie and then unwind at the end, there's a beautiful rhythm and symmetry to what he does. And he's just a fucking babe. I loved Tim Curry so fucking much, informed a lot of things about me. And I was so glad to see him in a role that I haven't spent time with before. It was your last little Tim Curry present waiting under the tree. <laughs> Lauren, who is your daddy? Yeah, like Sarah said, I can't think of anyone else other than Madeline. I mean, we've obviously talked at Nazim about how amazing her performance is. So I feel like maybe he'd give a special daddy mention to Michael McKeon. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I think also because before this movie, I would have probably only known him um, from Laverne and Shirley, where he's so sure. over the top oh, and God, so yeah. silly. I forget if he's uh, Lenny or Squiggy. So I always big. forget which is which. He's Lenny. He's Lenny. And okay. I remember that because he's the more sort of normal passing of the two so he has the more normal name but oh, oh my way. god lauren i'm sure you've seen it 
But if anyone wants a nice little cry, you should watch the episode where Laverne thinks she's pregnant, which A, is very troubling, the circumstances around how she got pregnant, because in classic 70s fashion, they're like, she passed out at a Blatt's brewing party and woke up and maybe she's pregnant. And you're like, oh, I feel like we should... Uh, uh, start a lawsuit that goes all the way to the top. But, uh, no, sure. we breeze right past that. But then we have this scene where Lenny proposes marriage to Laverne so that the baby can have a father. I know this episode. Oh, yeah. I think I've seen that clip. Yes, it's very sweet. Yeah. And she says no. And he says, well, Squiggy and I flipped a coin. And she's <laughs> like, what? And you lost? And he's like, no, I won. Oh, <laughs> and it makes me cry. So and it's so nice. good. I love Lenny. I love Squiggy. I love them all. <laughs> I think he's his performance is really lovely. It was more understated than I think I was used to at the time. I think now this is the Michael McKean that we would be more used to. Yes. I mean, obviously compared mm-hmm. to, you know, dramas, but in comedy. The combination of him being kind of the square one, but also being slightly of a... Uh, <laughs> Accident prone, as he likes to say. Mm -hmm. I had to stop her from screaming and also looking fantastic (laughs) in a three-piece suit. I do love a man in a Mm three-piece suit. He does. I think in such a loud, large Mm -hmm. comedy with a lot of big jokes and a lot of big physical gags, he still fits in with this sort Mm -hmm. of balance of this square character who also um, has real comedic moments that don't seem like they're forced. I would put him in the same vein as Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent. Yes, really. that's yeah. a great one. <laughs> well, how should people find you, Lauren? Uh, well, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter. It's my full name, Lauren Milberger. On my website, I have my Murphy Brown podcast. I also used to do a Harrison Ford podcast on films. People want to go back and listen to that. I have a Gracie Allen podcast. Uh, she was a vaudeville comedian. Hence, I like verbal comedy. That's what she used to do. Uh, and I believe that there are a lot of funny women that people just don't know about. Mm-hmm. And I would love to give them a spotlight. I've also written for Collider, written about Carrie Fisher and Nora Ephron. Uh, so you can uh, check me out uh, on social media or on my website. It's very important work you're doing, Lauren. Yes, I, I should write another alarmist article for the New York Times about how Gen Z isn't watching Fanny Bryce movies enough. <laughs> I have a thing I want to do. Say goodnight, Lauren. Goodnight. <laughs> All right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Louise Bicken for editing. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for editing and producing. We put up a new bonus every month that you can find via Patreon and Apple subscriptions. Thank you so much, Fresh Lesh, for providing the beats that make our transitions sound so sweet. Thanks for everything you do, Lesh. Next week, we have an episode about Secretary coming up uh, that will be with the great Anna Fitzpatrick. This was a tremendous conversation, uh, both about uh, what movies' responsibilities ultimately are to the viewers and to specific communities. And then also we had a great conversation about parasocial relationships. So that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. We really appreciate you. Thank you for making the show possible by listening. Please spread the word. Please leave reviews on Apple Podcasts if that's a thing that you are able to do. And have a tremendous week. You are good.